thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and you care for us. We thank you that you are in control no matter what is going on, that you, nothing happens that you don't, that you haven't already approved and allowed, and that you are the one that judges and, and brings justice to, to those who deserve it and, and punishment to those who deserve it. Lord, we thank you that you're going to guide and lead us as we look at this scripture where you bring judgment on the people. In your son's name, amen. Ezekiel 21. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, and drop your word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say unto the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and will draw forth my sword out of my sheath, and will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of the sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, and all flesh, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of my, it's his sheath. It shall not return any more. Sigh therefore, you son of man, from, with the breaking of your loins and with bitter sighs before their eyes. And it shall be when they shall say unto you, Wherefore say... Sieth you that you shall answer for the tidings because it comes and every heart shall melt and all hands shall be feeble and every spirit shall faint and all knees shall be weak with as water behold it comes and shall be brought to pass says the Lord God so we're going to look here this is continuing judgment on Israel which is a big part of the the book of Ezekiel is God's God's judgment and it starts out, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and drop your word toward the holy places and prophesy against the land of Israel. So Ezekiel said to look toward Jerusalem. And usually when people looked toward Jerusalem in the Old Testament, it was in prayer. If you remember when Daniel prayed from Babylon, he would, he would open the window that faced Jerusalem and pray toward Jerusalem. And in this case, it would normally be the idea of pray toward Jerusalem. And they, all through Israel, they have done that and still do. <laughs> they set up their synagogues in such a way, usually, that they will be praying for the majority of them toward Jerusalem or Israel. And why? I don't know. There's nothing in Scripture that tells them to do it, but that is where the, the temple is. And there's this whole idea of the temple being special. And we've talked about this uh, at various times, even in, the, in Jesus' day. They never believed that Rome was going to take and destroy them. It, where, where the temple was, was, was a great victory. The temple was to never be destroyed. Uh, if they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle, it was a, a, they used it as a good luck charm after a while. And a couple of times God let it get captured just to prove to them it wasn't a good luck charm. Uh, this happened when uh, Samuel was... And toward the end of his life, they sent the Ark of the Covenant out into battle, and it got captured, and his sons, Samuel's uh, sons were killed, and then he got the news, and he fell and broke his neck, and eventually they got the Ark of the Covenant back, but it wasn't, it happened on several occasions. Well, their mindset that these were lucky charms, you know, kind of like lucky charms, they're talismans, they're, if we go out into battle with God's Ark, we cannot be defeated. During this period of time that Ezekiel is, is preaching to the people, it's, we have Jerusalem. Jerusalem will never be taken. The temple is there in Jerusalem. The temple is this talisman. It cannot be 
destroyed, it cannot be conquered. And it hadn't been conquered up till now. And God had been merciful to them and never, uh, never allowed it to be taken. But we see this whole looking toward Jerusalem as a, as a special thing. If you go to a Jewish synagogue, even in this day, the, the, uh, ten, the, the Decalogue, the, and I'm still not getting the right word, the Pentateuch <laughs> is held inside a cabinet and during the, during the service, at least on an Orthodox church, I don't know about anything else, but on an Orthodox church uh, synagogue, they go in, they open up the cabinet, and inside is a scroll covered with very ornate covering. They take it out, and they basically parade it around the, around the synagogue to where it, around to the back and to the front. They do it in the conform, reformed. I've only been to an Orthodox twice, and that's why I've seen it. And they bring it up, they set it out, they, un, they do make a big ritual of unwrapping it, unrolling it, and they usually use gloves or very, and, a, and a pointer in the, when they read it. They don't, it's not used, it's not touched. It's, it's, but it, in one sense, it's very awe-inspiring to see how elevated the word of God is in their mind, but at the same sense, you get this feeling of uh, idolatry worship, the way, the way it is paraded and, and, and handled as well. So it's kind of a mix between the two. You, you, un, you see it for, you know, that it has a very high place, but it's almost, it's an idol. It's, it's at that point where it's very close to an idol, if not an idol. And this is what they're doing here. He says, speak against Jerusalem, face toward Jerusalem, which is normally the prayer, prayer direction. And it says, drop your word. And this is poetic language to let your words fall out like rain. You know, it's, it's very poetic on it. And he says, toward the holy places and prophesy against the land of Israel. And I kind of feel sorry for Ezekiel because it seems like every time he's talking to them, he's condemning them. Uh, you don't see a whole lot of good news in any of his messages. You see some hope for good news that God is going to redeem them sometime in the future. But most of what he says to them is pretty harsh. And I feel sorry for him as a, as a preacher, as an as a instructor, because everything is so harsh. You, know, you don't want to always be speaking hard things. You, sometimes you have to, but you don't always want to. Verse 3 says, And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against you and will draw forth my sword out of its sheath and will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. So God says that he's going to separate. Separate the righteous and the wicked. Now at this point in time in Israel, there's not a lot of righteous. They're not, they're not very uh, well represented. That's why they're going into captivity. We know there's some righteous because Daniel goes into Babylon and his, he and his friends are followers of God. And we know there are some followers of God because there is always a remnant of people. And we always kind of keep that in mind. If ever you're in a place where you think like, I'm the only Christian that's out there, or I'm the only one in this area, don't let Satan lie to you because there's always a remnant. Elijah turned... Elijah turned to God and said, I'm the only one following. He goes, no, there's 5,000 that haven't turned to Baal. Go back up where I told you to, told you to be. <laughs> okay? So we oftentimes can feel isolated if we're not careful. 
But there's always a remnant of people, no matter how bad things get, there's always a remnant. Even in Noah's day, there was a remnant. It was a remnant of one. <laughs> but God says, you and your family, because of your righteousness, Noah, your family's going to be kept. Now, we seem to believe that maybe uh, that Shem seems to have been righteous because his righteous line seems to follow from him. But we know that Noah was. He, he, was, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But we always know there's a remnant. There's always a remnant of people out there that are following God. He has never been totally alone. Even during the dark ages when the Catholic Church got further and further and further and further away from the Bible, there was a remnant of people holding on to the Word of God underneath. Now, they didn't make themselves well known because they were killed if they got found out. They weren't part of the Catholic Church. They would be, they would be executed. But we see a remnant holding on to the truth. And as we see the darkness growing in our day, keep in mind there will always be a remnant of followers following God. Even in the book of Revelation, there's a remnant that follow God through those seven years of tribulation. There's always going to be a remnant following him, and there will be a remnant of people at the end when Jesus returns that have not taken the mark of the beast and will be entering into the millennial kingdom always a remnant that follows God. So we want to look at that, and God's going to separate the righteous and the wicked in this. And in verse 4, seeing then that I will cut off those, I'll cut you off from the righteous and, and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south unto the north. So from the whole kingdom, as far south as you go to the north, could also be considered for the whole world, when God judges, it is a complete judgment that he brings. When he judged the world at Noah's time, it was a complete judgment. When he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, it was that entire valley that was, that was judged. We see his judgment being a fulfillment of it. When he sends Israel into captivity for the final, it's, he sends literally everybody out. And, he, and the reason, according to Jeremiah, was so the land would celebrate its Sabbath year that they had not fulfilled. And if you remember, we've been talking in the past about every seven years they were to not plant their fields and they were just to live on whatever came up naturally or the bumper crop that was supposed to happen in the sixth year. They were supposed to get a very good crop and set it aside and live on part of that and then let their fields sit for, for the whole year without being plowed and, and, har and planted. But uh, we see that God says, I'm going to judge. And he says he's got a sword that he's going to take out of, his, out of his side. Now, whether that is the word of God, which I believe it is the word of God coming to judge people, or a literal type of punishment sword, either way it doesn't matter because both are true. He's going to judge his people. He's going to send them into captivity. God punishes when the, his children when the time comes. And he still does today. If you're one of his children and you want to live the wrong lifestyle, you will get punished from God. And he will always bring out the punishment. And it says that if you're not punished by God, if you're not disciplined by God, you're not one of his children. <laughs> And so we have to keep that in mind when, we're, when we look at this. And this is why we say in, when bad things happen to us, our first 
thought should be, do I deserve this? Have I been living in sin and do I deserve what's happening? If that's not true, then we go on and we go, okay, God, what are you trying to teach us? What are you trying to test us with? It says that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword from its sheath. It shall not return anymore. And this is a statement, and we've seen this over and over in the book of Ezekiel, that you may know that I am the Lord. God does things to show people he is the Lord. And you know, this is one of those things when I look around and you know, I, I talk to people who believe things like evolution and everything and going, how can you believe in evolution when every bit of evidence shows that there's design, there's organization, there's a plan that's put into this? I, I look at things when they do comparative anatomy and say, well, all arms seem to have the same shape with the fingers and, and things, no matter what it is, and they're right, it all does. But to me, that goes, God had a perfect design. You know, to me, it's the same thing. If you study architecture, you can tell what architect designed buildings because they put certain things that they like in their design that they think works best. God had a plan, and it works the best, and he used it over and over again. So to me, it's not showing evolution like they want to show. It shows a perfect design that God used. But we look around and we say, how could you even begin to believe that it all happened by an accident? You see God in everything. And it is very hard for me to understand that. But it says that God will draw the sword. He punishes. And he says, in this case, it shall not return anymore. This is kind of serious. He says, you've gone to the end. Very much as the day in Noah, when, where the people had pushed it so far that God says, okay, I'm done. I'm saving Noah and his family, and everybody else is gone. We get to the end days and the tribulation, and he says, okay, I'm taking my church out, and we're going to allow all this horror to be, be poured upon the world. And we've seen this over and over again, how nations will get judged. God judges nations for their unrighteousness as a nation. And this is one of the things that scares me about our nation right now, as I watch our nation becoming so unrighteous, there will come a point where God says, you've crossed the line. And this nation will cease to exist as, as a... But they're all unrighteous. Well, right now all of them are, but that's, why, that's also why I believe we're at the very end times. There's, not, there's no nation that I can say is a righteous nation that can stand up in the place of anybody else. So this is why I believe we're very close to the end times. God will protect a lot of his people, but there is suffering for all. And the argument will go that it's because we haven't done enough to keep the, righteous, the unrighteousness from going forward. And the church is not blameless in the direction this country has gone. The church has backed away, especially through the 1800s and the early 1900s. The church backed away from being active in trying to keep things from going the way they did. And we now see the results of it. It is God's hands. It's still in God's plan. We see how God has used it in the past when, when he's taken the people captive. Daniel was sent to Babylon, who became a leader in Babylon, and then a leader in, in the Medo-Persian Empire, and led them toward God. So, I mean, anything can happen from even that situation coming, out, coming about. Because God's hand is always there. And again, we go back to there's always a remnant. There's always a people that will keep keep speaking for God, even in the darkest hours of everything, everything looks totally gone and gloomy, there will be a righteous people that hold a glimmer of light that keep the gospel moving forward. 
the message moving forward. Because it, most people separate their Christianity from their day-to-day -day living. It's an amazing thing to me, and this is really a big statement, is too many Christians will literally be Christian on Sunday morning and then not apply Christian truth to any other part of their life. And a lot of our politicians, if they're Christians, and that's a big gift for some of them, will not let their Christianity play in their, you just put a different hat on it. You know, this is my Christian world. This, I'm a Christian now. You know, I'm playing sports. I'll do whatever it takes to win. It doesn't matter. I'll cheat. I'll hurt people because my Christian doesn't play into sports. You know, when I'm, when I'm dealing with, trying to make a deal, I'm going to make the deal that's best for me, even if it hurts that person because I, my Christianity doesn't pour into that. We are just really good about having these hats on that say, this is my Christian world, this is my sports world, this is my business world, this is my hobby world, whatever, you know, this is my family, you know, and we don't want that as Christians. We need to be a Christian 24-7, 365 days a year, and my Christianity should overlap everything I do in my business dealings. I need to be thinking about, yes, it's okay to make money, but not at the expense of taking advantage of everybody. There should be a win, a win-win for everybody. We see this process going on over and over. How is God lifted up? How is he brought into every aspect of my life? Which is one of the reasons we're told not to be unequally yoked. And it's not just in marriage. It is in our business relationship. It's with our best, you know, who, who's our best friend. And, I, and I've already said, you know, I don't say you can't have friends who aren't Christians, but they should not be your best friend because there's always going to be that, that friction there on, well, you won't do the things I want to do. Well, the things you're wanting to do are ungodly, and I cannot do those. And so we have those aspects going on. The, in the business world, if you're unequally yoked you're, and you're trying to run an honest, upright business, and the guy goes, well, we can cut a corner here, and we can cut this corner and you know we can we can push this law, you know we can do this, and there's always that friction involved. And if somebody's going to be a Christian in all aspects of their life, there's a problem. And we need to be very careful about how are we living our life on a day-to-day -day basis. And we know we can't be perfect, but we should be striving to say, I want to honor God in all parts of my life. We raise our, our children to honor God and to look at the word and to say, what does God say in this situation? And bring God into everything that we do. And uh, it, it will keep us that remnant going forward. You know, if we don't raise up our children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews to follow God, it's not long until this country just won't follow God at all. And we're starting to see just that happening. And it's sad because I've met so many children over the years who turn away from the church, and usually their reason is, you know, a lot of people want to blame the school system, and the school system is not helping matters any. Okay, the school system, the universities, they're not helping matters any. But ultimately, when you really start talking to these kids, they'll tell you things like, mom and dad never prayed at home, they didn't read their Bible at home, we just went to church on Sunday morning, and all it was was a farce. They didn't live out Christianity. And if you're not leaving out Christianity in front of your kids, and then you have a school telling them that they're, that, you know, it's all a fairy tale and a myth anyway, and you've basically told them that because you're not living that way, 
then the kids say, well, I want to find something that's real. And we need to be living out our Christianity. People need to see that it is true. I come to church. I study God's word. I, you know, and I've, I've shared with you the greatest thing that happened when my dad got saved is that I would find him reading his Bible and praying at home. And every time I asked him about something, he'd go say, what does God say? And he'd turn to the Bible. That was my lifestyle. What does is, what is God say? He would study. He would pray. It wasn't anything that was just on Sunday morning we go to church, but it was a lifestyle of God and what is important. The same thing I tried to apply to my children, and I've watched my children learn so much, and it's commenting all the time about how they've learned more than they ever thought they learned because it was part of our life. It was who we, who we were and what we did. Many times, going, driving in cars, we'd sing choruses. We wouldn't even turn the radio on half the time. We'd just sing choruses and, and songs for all the time. But we, we live this way. We need to bring it out in front of everybody. Verse 6 says, Sigh therefore, you son of man, by, with the breaking of your loins and with the bitterness, sigh before your eyes. And this sighing literally means to groan. He says, groan with the breaking of your loins. And this is, we would say, breaking of your heart, pretty much, because it's talking about the inner, the word here, literally, rather than loins, is liver, <laughs> the large center of the, the intestinal area that they would say, and that was what the Jews would say. They, they, you, didn't, you didn't love you with all your heart, they loved you with all their, all their liver. <laughs> so it's just, but we, to use our vernacular in English, <laughs> you know, sigh with the breaking of your heart. You are extremely at odds with what's going on. And can you imagine Ezekiel loves his land, he loves his people, and he's seeing what God's going to do to it. And he's saying it's all going to go. The temple's going. The temple's going to be destroyed. And we really can't really understand what that's all about, the idea of the temple being destroyed. The temple was the center of everything for them. Three times a year, all the men had to go to Jerusalem to worship God. This is how important the temple was. Everything centered around the temple. When the kingdom split after Solomon, and the king in the north said, well, I can't have the people going to Jerusalem three, three times a year because if they go to Jerusalem, then they might want to be reunified at some point in time. So he made two temples and idols to of golden calf worship and introduced a new god to the people all because he was afraid of the unity unifying effect of the Jerusalem and the temple there and we see this he says sigh with great and with bitterness before your eyes you know in other words tears you know he's picturing a very strong emotional reaction to this destruction that's coming and he's looking at this and I can picture what he's looking at you know the desire that oh God can't we keep this going even when I say I see that we're so close to the end days and our country is due judgment it also makes me very sad and bitter at the same time because I love my country <laughs> I love the freedom that we have in this country and I do not want to see things fall apart we're one of the few democracies that can actually work or used to work because of the foundation of our country is God's moral truth. 
And the founding fathers all said this, that democracy only works if the people are moral and followers of God's virtues, which is why the only other really truly uh, successful democracies have been built in places where God has a very strong base. In England, where for years they had the Church of England as, as their founding, which had moral issues on it. In the Middle East, they have Israel as the only successful, truly successful democracy that's there because it's based on God's truths. Uh, wherever his truth does not reign, there's bribery and corruption in their democracies. Most of the South America is, is that bribery is the centerpiece of their democracies. The one, and it's a hard place to be because it's not built on truth. And everywhere else, democracies have tried to happen. If it's not built on it, it's, they run hard. Democ the corruption runs rampant. And we're seeing it in our country. The further we get from the word of God, the more corruption we're seeing in our government. And it's a sad place to be. And there's probably always been some level of corruption, but when our country was basically a moral country, under God's word, corruption was less. And now we see corruption running rampant. We can't even get things through Congress without buying, a, buying, a, buying somebody's vote for it with some piece of legislation that nobody wants, but because you have to have it to get the compromise through, they, they make those, those kind of deals. And again, holding true to God's standard. It's not easy to be somebody holding God's standard because everybody looks at you, number one, like you're a nut. You know, have you been in a place where you say, I'm going to tell the truth or I'm going to do what's right, and everybody's going to look, well, why would you do that? You can get away with it. Nobody, know, nobody knows. Well, God knows. And he promises that the truth is going to come out at some point. If you are not honest with somebody, whether it's taking something or lying or whatever it might be, the truth eventually comes out. And because God says that he will not let, our, let us sin. He will not let sin reign. Verse 7 says, And it shall be when they say unto you, Wherefore sigh you? And you shall answer, for the tidings, because it comes, and every heart shall melt, and every, and all hands shall be feeble, and every spirit faint, and all knees shall be weak as with water. Behold, it comes, and it shall come to pass, says the Lord God. The tidings. It says the tidings, the news that's coming is why he's sad. But I look at something I noticed, and it said this. It says, every heart shall melt, every hand shall be feeble, every spirit shall faint, and all knees shall be weak. How are we to worship God? With body, soul, and spirit. What happens here when God says he looses his sheath, his sword? The heart faints. The heart melts, literally melts. It says the hands become feeble and the spirit becomes faint. Body, soul, and spirit are affected on the negative as well. You know, it's kind of amazing because you look at people who are not following God. What are they looking for? They're looking for strength. They don't have enough strength to do what's right. Most of them have no hope. Their, their, their heart is, is melted. Have you met people who have little to no hope? 
nothing is right, nothing is good, nothing, you know, there is no hope in the future because all things are bad. Every time they touch something, it turns bad. They don't, they don't, they, they have something that for a moment looks good and the next thing you know, they're griping that it's not bad, not good. This is the way the world is. They're never happy for long. And if we're not following God close enough, we're the same way. Nothing's ever good. I got this brand new car. It's a wonderful car. It smells good. It looks good. Everything works real well. A year or two later, when the new models are all out, you know, it doesn't have the bells and whistles of the new model. No longer smells quite as good. A couple people in the parking can lock and put some dings in your car, and you're no longer happy with the car that works perfectly fine. It just doesn't have everything that's top of the notch. And we do this over and over in our lifetime. And we have an entire industry that is designed to make us unhappy with what we have, called advertising. You didn't know you had a problem until they got on the, on the TV and told you all about how hard it is to flip an egg on a, on a pan. You need this special pan that all you gotta do is flip the pan over because it's really hard to flip, that, flip the egg over. I have fun with those commercials. They, you know, how hard is it to pop popcorn? You know, it's, you know, you've got to have this special machine, and if you don't have this special machine, you can never make it perfect. But you didn't know you had a problem until these guys came on TV to tell you you've got a problem. And, you know, and I'm making fun of these ones that are really ridiculous. You know, we can make fun of the car commercials. You, know, you need a car that can park itself because it is really hard to parallel park, you know, to turn your car a 45 degree angle and turn the wheel you know, back, back, uh, back to the other direction and pull in. You know, it's really hard, so you've got to have a car that parallel parks itself. But you know, you've got cars now that, that tell you when you're getting out of your lane. How long have we been driving cars that didn't tell us that we were getting? But the whole idea is, we don't know we have a problem until we get these advertisers telling we, so we have a problem. Now we're, now we're all bummed out that we have this problem that we need to solve. And some of, the, some of these can be really serious issues, yes, but you know, I wonder how any of us lived in our, to be as old as we are for all the things we did wrong. You know, we, we, we rode in cars with no car seats, climbing back and forth, standing in the back seats. We rode bikes without helmets. Like I say, I laugh at a lot of these tinsels for cooking and everything, you know, that, you know, how did we ever get by without these specialized <laughs> pieces of equipment to make our life easy? We've got an entire industry telling us how bad our life is to create desires that we don't need and make us unhappy with what it is so that we can covet the things that we don't have, which is a violation of the Ten Commandments, to covet. Inordinately want something that I don't have because I just can't live without it is really bad. And we have an industry that's designed to do just that. Tell us all about how bad our life is and how we need something to fix it. Well, we do have a bad life and we do need something to fix it, but that's God. And once we have God, we can learn to be content with, it, with whatever we have. Off, off my soapbox for anti-advertising. But advertising has been going on forever too. Okay, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, say, say a sword, a sword is sharpened and also furbished. It is a sword to make sore slaughter, and it is furbished and it may glitter. Should we then make mirth it contendeth the rod of my son as every tree and he has given it to be furbished and it may be handled this sword is sharpened it is furbished it is given into the hand of the slayer 
Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people, it shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people, therefore upon your thigh, because it is a trial, and it is what if the sword can contemn even the rod? It shall be no more, says the Lord God. So here we have this picture of a sword, and it's kind of interesting how God's describing his sword. It says, Son of man, say, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also furbished. So this sword is kept sharp. And what does it say about it, the God's word? It is sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting asunder to the bone and marrow, the spirit and the soul. And then it says, and furbished. Now, furbished doesn't mean anything to us in our day in, in language, but in this case, it means polished. It is kept clean. It is kept polished. The sword has been polished to a gleaming bright sword. And this is one of the things, if you ever watch the medieval movies and, and shows, you know, the, especially the, the young knights are always being chastised. Your sword is, is tarnished or you didn't clean your sword after the battle. You know, the older knights are always saying you didn't clean your sword. And a sword is supposed to have been kept very special because they were very valuable. It is, a sharp, it is sharpened to make sore slaughter. And this literally means to, to uh, be grievous in its slaughter. And that sore slaughter is the same Hebrew word repeated twice. So it's, again, emphasizing slaughter. It literally means slaughter, slaughter. <laughs> and... Uh, and it says it is furbished or polished, and it may glitter. And glitter, glittering swords, that's how they describe swords, that they were so polished, so bright, that they would reflect the light. There would be flashes of light when they moved. And we see this on the well-done shows that have swords. You'll see the, they, they purposely make sure that the, especially the hero's sword has always got the glitter, the, the flashes of light coming off of it, because they're the, they're the hero. Nobody else's swords may, may, glit, may glint and, and have flashes, but the hero's sword must be clean and bright at all times. Even in the middle of a great battle, his sword has to, their, their sword has to be that type. That we should make mirth. And it says, you know, when God's sword is out, should we be happy? Should we be, should we be exalting and rejoicing? It contemns or it despises is, is what it literally means. This sword despises. It despises the rod of my son as every tree. So when his sword is out, you know, over and over again, he says the rod chastens, the rod chastens. He's beyond the rod at this point. There comes a time when God says you're not responding to simple discipline and he starts bringing out heavy disciplines. And if you've ever been there, you know what it's like. First, he'll just talk to you. You know, you're reading the word, you're studying, you're praying, and God might just whisper in your ear, don't do something. If you don't listen to him, you'll probably hear a message or two from a pastor or the radio or whatever saying, don't do this. You don't listen. God brings out the, the rods and starts hitting you a little bit with it and making sure that you're hearing there comes a point where he gets more and more strict with the discipline. And people have asked on this, and I truly believe there comes a point that if you will not listen to God, 
and he is chastising you pretty hard, and that may mean that you've had injuries and you've had serious, serious things going on in your life, and you still will not respond to God, and you're his child, he will probably take you home earlier than you were supposed to, than you should have been, because you will not listen. Again, you've got to be careful with general. I mean, the generalogy is that people will be taken home early, but you've got to be careful saying, well, this person died young because, no, that's not necessarily true. It could be that God just has them going home early to be a testimony. And this would be something you'd... Any number, any number of reasons why that could happen. Number one, vans are the one, are chief, chief source of, uh, of accidents because people don't know how to drive the big vans. They think they're driving a car and they go to make a sharp turn and, and, and uh, turn the car. So some of it's just idiocy. Some of it may be judgment. Some of it just may be God saying, I wanna, I wanna show my grace and my faithfulness. But does the judgment, that's my question, does the judgment carry over we all suffer because of, of sin and not necessarily our own sin. Right. Uh, why, do, why do innocent people, seemingly innocent people die at an early age, at, you know, uh, when the drunk goes off the road and hits, hits another car? You know, uh, sin has consequences, and sometimes that sin affects other lives. And it's part of... It is part of the fallen world we live in. Now, are there anybody who's totally innocent? No. Are there people that are more innocent than others? Yes. I mean, there are people trying to live godly lives, but they're not, even in that case, they're not innocent. Uh, one of the questions people will ask, well, why do bad things happen to good people? And I will state that the real question should be, why, does good why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're all bad. We all deserve punishment and yet God allows good things to happen to us. And I was always taught, you know, you know, you got caught doing something wrong and you, you know, or got caught when you weren't doing something wrong, you probably uh, had enough times when you didn't get caught and punished for the wrong you did that you can't really complain. Uh, it is hard, and it's hard to understand sometimes when you watch a, a child with, that gets totally sick because of somebody else's mistake or disease or problem. It's hard when you look at a, a person who is a righteous person trying to live for God who gets hurt because a drunk driver hits them or something. But you know, God still will get glory out of what happens. When the people are martyred, God gets glory from it because people look at their life and say, see, this is my servants are willing to die for me and, and he's exalted. Fox's Book of Martyrs goes through hundreds of deaths of those God's saints to show us that people turn to God because of the death of his saints. You have somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata who dove off of a raft and broke her neck and was a, is a quadriplegic even to this day. And you go, well, how can that be good? Well, she has made a huge ministry ministering to other people with the same type of injuries. And she has... She is giving glory to God. You know, if she had been healed in, when she was 17 and got instantly, miraculously healed, she would have been a huge faith story for a couple of you know, months to years. 
and then nobody would ever, ever have heard of her again. As it was, this pushed her into a ministry that is, you know, touching millions of lives around the world. So why do bad things happen? We don't know. Sometimes it's because we deserve it. Sometimes it's just that God says, I'm going to, see, I'm going to, I'm going to be glorified through your faithfulness. And this is something that we can do. Sometimes when we go through our hardest periods of life, people watch us and say, how does a Christian react when unfair things happen in their life? How do they react when, when it looks like everything's going wrong? And when we act like the world, we just confirm to them that, well, see, I knew this Christian stuff was, no, was a bunch of baloney. When we stand with God and we go, God, I don't understand it, but I want to be faithful to you. I want to serve you. They look at it and say, there must be something to that Christianity. You would be very surprised how many people are watching you. If, you. if you're claiming to be a Christian to them, now if you've never told people you're a Christian, then they're not watching you. People have known that I'm a Christian because I'm very vocal about God. I'm very vocal about God's word. I'm very vocal about, about following him. And, and so that's, that's who I am. I tell people and they will watch and they watch little things and they'll let you know when you do if you're if you're telling people you're a Christian and you do something wrong they'll be in your face real quick to let you know what kind of Christian are you but they're but they're watching you they're looking to see how you as a Christian live and you know what they want even when they're really in your face trying to show you that they you know trying to tell you they don't care they are really hoping and they may not even understand it but they are really hoping that there is something to your Christianity that is real because they know they're not happy they know that they don't have things correct and believe me you may not believe it but they are looking and they may not really know what they're looking for they're just looking for something that's real our current generation of, of young people teenagers children they're looking for something that's real because their whole life is built around unreal things all these kids that are living in, in their games and their pretend friends on Facebook, Twitter, and all these other things where they re think they've got lots of friends, but they know they don't have friends. You know, how many people have friends that they know that if something goes wrong in the middle of the night, they can call that person and that person will get up and help them? There's not a whole lot of people like that in anybody's lives. And if you can count, usually it's said if you can count that on one hand, that many friends, then you're, you're a very fortunate person. I have several people that I know that I could call in the middle of the night. Now, would they be absolutely thrilled that I called them in the middle of the night? No. But if I really needed help, I have people that I could call at any time, and even if it was to do nothing but sit down and have coffee because I'm having such a bad time, they would do that, and they know that I would do it for them. You know, not everybody has those kind of friends. And it's important to have somebody that you can be able to say, I just need to be able to talk to somebody, no matter what. I need somebody, and we have that kind of relationship. Jesus, of course, says he's the friend that's closer than a brother, that he's beyond able to talk to at all times. But there are those times when you just want somebody real. <laughs> As, as good as God is, and as good as, you know, most of my time I can just go to God. If I wake up in the middle of the night and, and I'm having a really rough time, I'll just start talking to God, maybe pick up my Bible and, and read it, and then I'll usually be able to go back to bed and go to sleep because I know that he is my care. But, you know, 
he, the world is looking at us. They know they don't have something that's real. If they did, there wouldn't be all the alcoholism and drug addictions and all these other things that people are looking for because they would know they have something real. Our deliverance from hell is our first and foremost reason for coming to Christ, but there's also a lot of good that comes with it. Having a friend that sticks closer than a brother, to have somebody that gives us strength through all that ha happens to us. Doesn't mean we don't fail, doesn't mean we're not gonna have problems, doesn't mean that we're even gonna have times when we go, God, I, I'm sorry, I really blew it. I was a lousy testimony this last week while I, when, I, when all this stuff was going wrong and I didn't rely on you. But other times we walk through the trials. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death and say, God, you're with me. And people look at us and say, I want what you have. They might not even ask you, but it says they've got something I want. I want to find out more about what they, what they have. And it's very important that we keep this in mind at all times, that God is out there. He wants to give us something good in our life. He wants to be able to say, I am your strength. I am your tower. I am your defense. And you've all said the same thing over more than once, you know, that you're finding that God is a good defender. <laughs> when you just sit back and let him be your defense, you watch him defend. You watch him. And you know what? People see that. When you do that, when you don't act the way that the world would normally act, people notice. Now, if all you do is act like the world... <laughs> You're not going to have people taking notice of you. If you're saying you're always bad-mouthing people, you're always trying to defend yourself, you're always trying to, to get out of trouble by saying not quite truths, you're always trying to be like the world, they notice that too and they go, well, I know that person goes to church and they talk a little bit about God, but eh, there's no, there's no reality in what they're saying. They need to see something that's real. And you know what? Even if we fail and we repent, and they see that, that speaks volumes to them too, because then they see that a God that has mercy and grace, as long as you're not using your grace and mercy to be a sinner all the time. And this is why it's important for us to walk in Christ. We fail, we repent. But when people look at us, do they see a real relationship with God that says, I want to serve God as well as I can with his power and his strength. And people notice. They will notice. And they're watching us. If they know that we're a Christian, they're watching us. When I went to work and I would say, you know what God has done for me yesterday? You know, it's really wonderful. They start watching. When they look around and they go, you know, you don't, always, you don't seem to be negative and, and, de and depressed. Like, and usually they'll go like so-and-so. And you know, the funny thing is they always point to somebody else who's talking about being a Christian. You know, you're just not like this guy over here. You know, they can't even be a Christian, and you're a Christian. What's the, what's the difference? And it's a really hard place to go. I go, I don't know what, why they're not, but I can tell you why I am. <laughs> what, you know, why I'm happy, why I'm, you know, trying to follow God in this way and get to share about Christ. And then I walk very carefully in that, you know, when they say, well, you know, you say you're happy all the time because Jesus, what about so-and-so? They say they're a Christian and they're miserable. I go, well, I don't know why they're miserable. <laughs> all I know is that God has blessed me in a great way. But it also tells you that they're looking. They're looking for something real. And if you think about it, many of us became Christians because we were looking for something real in our life. We wanted that 
power to live right. We wanted to, the burden of our sin lifted off us. We wanted to, to avoid hell, which is a valid reason to get saved. But whatever it might be, we, look, we were looking for something when we came to God. And if it wasn't when we came to God, it was when we came back to God. You know, we got way off, in the, off away from God, and all of a sudden we go, you know what, I don't have any joy, I don't have any, nothing seems to be good. And then we go, I think I better get back with God. And that might mean more to a lot of people than when they first got saved, because all of a sudden it's like, well, God, I need, I need the joy of my salvation back. That's what David's prayed in, in Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Then will I lead sinners in the way. You know, sinners are looking for that joy in our life, not a defeated life. They're looking for the joyful life that has power and defense and that God is in control of. And when we're joyful, and I mean, and I don't mean happy. I, you know, happy is something that we experience and comes and goes. Joy underlays everything. You can be having a miserable time and still have a level of joy underneath it that says God's in control. Yeah, I'm not happy about anything that's going on, but God's in control, and there's a peace and a joy that's deep in our heart that says God is in control. And that is what will set us apart from everybody. That is what keeps us from being totally depressed and going off the deep end. You know, well, everything's bad. You know, I, don't, I don't know if anybody's met anybody like that. You know, I, I, I co- it's called the Eeyore, you know, the, you know. If you watch Spoonie the Pooh, Eeyore was always, you know, the, the sun is shining, but the, the, it's going to rain in just an hour or two. Uh, if we're following God in a deep way, it's relying on him. Do I know that bad things are, going to, are, are just around the corner? Obviously, yes, there, there's all kinds of bad things. But, you know, because I know God's in control, I know that whatever comes my way, he's in control of, and it's not going to be more than that he and I can handle. Now, it's more than I can handle, but it's not more than he and I can handle. As long as I let him be my defense, it will be okay. As long as I let him be my Lord and my master, it'll be okay. If I'm sitting there trying to say, okay, God, I can, I can deal with this, I'm going to be flatter than a pancake by the steamroller that's coming around the corner. But when it's him, he's going to have me off on the side of the street where I belong when the steamroller comes by, and I, get, I, I may get rumbled by it, but not not flattened by it. And this is the way God deals with us. He will keep us protected, not unscathed necessarily, but because he's in control, even when we get any kind of injury, it can lift him up. And this is one of the things when Christians do end up getting hurt, and they lift up God in the midst of it. My friend who got breast cancer, he would go in and have his chemotherapy and he'd be witnessing to the other people that were getting chemotherapy and the nurses and everything. I've seen people who are strong Christians on their deathbed witnessing to the people around them saying, I'm going to heaven. I need you. I want to see you again. You you need to get to know Jesus. Uh, You know, being able to say, you know, I've got hope. There, I'm going to a better place, and if you want to see me again, you need to become a Christian. Don't mourn for me. I'm going home type deal. We see this over and over in the way God's people face death, the way God's people face tragedies, the way God's people face adversity, because we trust in him and be able to look and say, you're in control. And when you know, it's a great blessing when you know that God's in control. 
And then you add to that that you know that all things work together for good. And then you add to that that God is good all the time. And he's not sending anything that, that's designed to hurt us. Now, we may be hurt for a temporary, but in the long run, what he's doing is designed to give us a better place later on, to make us stronger in the future. And the pain that we go through in this time is designed to make us stronger in the future. And I hope if you look over your life, you see just that. I went through something hard, which prepared me for something harder, so that I wouldn't be wiped out by that next harder. And then that prepares me for something harder yet coming down the road, and which will prepare me for something <laughs> harder down the road. And each one is just a slight step upward. But if it wasn't for the series of hardships that built us there, we wouldn't be able to handle what's coming our way. And Paul, when he said, you know, I can handle all this stuff. I can go in front of Caesar because he'd already had all kinds of people trying to take his life. Caesar, Caesar would really be the ultimate, the one who did take his life. But he'd already faced death so many times it was not a big deal for him to face it in front of Caesar. It was not a big deal to stand up and say, I'm going to keep preaching God no matter what. I'm going to be able to go through these series of events because God is always faithful and it's always been for good. And we look at it and say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready for what you're going to send me and just... Give me the strength. You're, uh, you're, my, you're my guard. You're my fortress. You're my tower. I'm just going to stand in you, and we're, you and I can go through everything. And when we have that attitude, nothing can defeat us. What can separate us from the love of God? Neither height, nor, nor depth, nor width, nor, nor principalities, nor demons, or anything. And he goes through this whole long list. Nothing can separate us from God as long as we stay inside God. We can try to separate ourselves by coming out and get beat up a little bit, but even that is not going to separate us. It just puts us outside the door and he drags us in when we've had enough. Well, we crawl in when we've had enough. But he's not going to let us get far away from him even then. Because we're in his hand and he's in the Father's hand and there's no way we're getting out of it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you go with us as we go about our business. Give us opportunities to share you with others. Give us opportunities to lift you up and help us to stay hidden in you, that you will be our strength, that people will look and see you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.